Hey there, and welcome to Radio Free Bay Ridge, your hyper-local progressive podcast focusing exclusively on beautiful Bay Ridge, Brooklyn. I am one of your hosts, Dan, and we got a bunch of people in the quote-unquote studio today, which is just all sitting around having grapes and cheese and beer. As one does. <laughs> As one does. Um, Let's go around. Um, Who's here today? Uh, Rachel. And Mary. Oh, and Mark Hanna. <laughs> Hi, Mark. I was Hi, being Mark. introduced this way. Okay, hello. Well, I'm, I'm glad to be here. Thank you for inviting me into this pseudo studio that's actually just somebody's home. <laughs> Welcome to the podcast. That's just how we do things. Yeah, it's it's how we and, and happy St. Patrick's Day to all. Yeah, it is St. Patrick's Day as of cheers. recording right now. So cheers, everyone. Slop clink, shit. clink. Get some nice ASMR content oh in there. <laughs> So today we are talking kind of um, similar to our la- one of our previous episodes with Andrew Gennardis on how a bill gets made. We're doing some civic education shit today. What is a district leader? And we figured there was no better person than Mark to bring in because, Mark, you're, you're running for district leader. I, just, I wish that that made me the best person to, to talk <laughs> about this with. I hope that you know what you're running for. Oh, I, I mean, I do, but <laughs> no, I mean, that there's a lot of history here. Uh, fun fact, actually, uh, St. Patrick is considered the first district leader um, because he led the snakes out of uh, the district. <laughs> ah, <laughs> organizing those snakes. Yep. Good, he was a good organizer. Wasn't it just that snakes never stop, were stop, in Ireland? Stop, Mary, you know about this. You, and that will not be fun for anyone except me. Please. If Get into the weeds. This on St. Patrick's Day. The years 406, common era. In Wales, a child is born. At the groaning of the Britons. The Roman Empire has ghosted the British Isles. The <gasps> barbarians are pressed again on every side. And this child grows up kidnapped by river pirates and they're Irish. He escapes the Irish river pirates and swims to France, becomes a bishop, returns to Ireland, and pays the pirates the payback of converting them all to Christianity. Because... That's oh, he just was how you real mad, wasn't he? He converted them to Protestantism or Catholicism. He converted them to the Irish Church, which was later decimated by the re-Christianization of the British Isles in the sixth century by Saint Constantine. Damn! All right, let's just make the episode about this. We are no, okay. educational. We, to, we are cut, now. <laughs> we are in drunk history. Like this is what we're doing now. Yes, absolutely. Fast forward to the late 1800s in which the district leader position is established in the state of New York, originally controlled exclusively by the um, county political committees back in the age of aldermen. And in case you don't know what a district leader even is. Mark, you're running for district leader. And one of the questions that I've heard you keep getting is, what is a district leader anyways? How do you answer that when people ask you? It's a volunteer position um, that is representing the constituencies of an assembly district to the party itself, the Democratic Party itself. The Republicans have their own district leaders too. It's a party position. The role of the district leader is part of county committee. There's 21 assembly districts in Brooklyn. Let's just keeping mm-hmm. it centered here since I'm running in the 64th assembly district, which is shared with Brooklyn and Staten Island, but I'm only running on the Kings County side of it because it's mm-hmm. county. Oh, uh, okay. So like those things where it's split, like uh, Michael Tanusis has the Brooklyn side and there's a Staten Island side. Right. You're running on just that Brooklyn side. So yeah. you get just the Brooklyn side. That's it. I'm only dealing with the Brooklyn side of it. In order to get on the ballot, you know, we're doing petitioning. We have to get people that are just in that Brooklyn portion. 
a camp petition in Staten Island for a county party position. Does that mean you get fewer petition signatures? No, no, we get, we get the put... same. Yeah, no, the requirement is the same regardless, which actually makes it sort of an interesting position to be in for me because a normal assembly district in Brooklyn would have upwards of almost 50,000 Democrats in yeah. it. But I've got 8,400. And, and you have to get the same number of petitions yeah, so the, to qualify. The election law has two different numbers that it would go by. It's either 5% of the district or, if that's too high, 500, which would be like the maximum allowable limit in the election law for how many petitions you would need in an assembly district. But 5% of my district is 400 and some odd people, which is not that much different than 500. So I end up having to actually get to 5%, which most <laughs> other districts don't have to do. 500 out of 50,000 is 1%. We're talking about like in order to get that many signatures in your district. You must really want to be in this role. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, I love this neighborhood. This assembly district is still a part of Bay Ridge that I've always been more involved with. It's that northern part of Bay Ridge with the predominantly Arab community in it. I'm Greek and Lebanese, and so my family is also involved in the Arab community. I love having my neighbors around. It's nice to be able to get people involved in local politics who live around me. And I know it's a small district, but it also means that I get to interact with more people percentage-wise in the whole district. You know, every time I go out door knocking to talk to folks about the position, about running, about politics in general, I feel like I'm doing more by accident, just by having a small district, it can get more people in my district involved in stuff. It's easier to do voter turnout. I can literally knock on every door in the district in the time period that we've got for petitioning, which means I'm also doing get out the vote simultaneously. It's <laughs> like, you know, if I, if I can reach 20% of my district, that's not just involvement in the political process. It's like a win number for most mm -hmm. people who are running for something. It is a lot of fun to be able to engage folks especially because I can't just do that kind of shotgunning approach that most people do during this period where they go to like a train station and hit as many people as possible. Like there's only one train station in the 64th, Bay Ridge Ave, and like people from the 51st and the 46th go there. So I end up needing to do a lot more door knocking, face-to-face -face interaction with people. And a lot of that time is spent surveying too. You get a sense of what people are interested in, how they feel about different things. Man, I've talked to so many people about that sleep act with Gennardis. Really? Oh my God, like the number of people that are very upset about noise in this district, like Gennardis was right. That was a good call to, to make something to like address the noise pollution from extraordinarily loud cars. It's really wild that the size of it gives and takes away. On one level, you have to get a weird percentage of petitioning numbers with a smaller population, but on the other side, if you win, you get to represent this really specific community and you won't have to spread around as much. But what exactly would you be spreading around if you had a larger district? Like, what are the responsibilities of a district leader beyond just being like a party position? The responsibilities are the same regardless of the size of the assembly district. There's 21 assembly districts, so there's 42 district leaders because there's a male and a female seat. It's uh, trans inclusive, but not non binary, so that, you know, if you identify as one gender or another, you can run for that seat, but there's still some ongoing legislation that I believe Zellner Myrie is the one promoting. Pretty yeah. sure it was him that pushed this. Yeah, yeah the district leader position kind of has a special place in my heart because when I finally settled down and lived somewhere long enough to like really pay attention to my local politics, one of the first people I met was female district leader Joanne Seminara. And early on, she was a good person to like, hey, can you explain me this thing? <laughs> You know, I'd like buttonhole her at a Bay Ridge Democrats meeting or 
later on, it was like, okay, I don't have a lot of time, but I want to get involved. I need a petition. I call up Chris McCrate. Hey, buddy. And he hooked me up with a petition. Useful people to know if you know your district leaders, guys. Look it up. See who they are. Get in touch with them. I've been really enjoying running with Joanne. She's been wonderful. Encouraging but also giving me good information about what to be doing, what to look out for. She's been in it for so long, and she's been trying to do most of these reforms forever. She seems pretty excited about the <laughs> prospect of having more people on board with what she's been looking to do for a long time. I'm really excited to continue working with her. The roles that we actually have are, in many cases, invisible to people. We don't get a lot of attention on this type of stuff. I think in some cases by design, for me, the one thing that was really grabbing me beyond just encouraging people to be more involved in the political process and the democratic process is the judicial screenings and putting judicial candidates on the ballot. Mm. Even as an attorney, when I go to the ballot, I see these judges and some of them I recognize because I've either been in front of them or they're from clubs that I'm aware of or something like that. But most of the time, I don't know any of those names and that's problematic even for me. Like I should be able to figure out who they are what they're about, where they come from, what kinds of attitudes yeah. they have towards different things. And it's sometimes impossible to get that information. But the district leaders do judicial screenings with candidates to put them on the ballot. Hmm. And that process is done behind closed doors. And we don't get any of the information. We don't know what they're asking them or how competent they are. So for me and a bunch of other people who are running for district leader on the New Kings Democrat slate, the Brooklyn Can't Wait slate, we're endeavoring to make that, as well as a few other things, more transparent for people. We have the ability to put all of that information out publicly. Judicial screenings can be done in an open forum before they get on the ballot. Yeah. So that we know whether or not we even want to have them representing us in the judicial system. Because that whole judicial system affects us all invisibly most of the time. It's not something that is legislative. So when people are affected by it, it's through case law and that the judges are the ones that have discretion for. So they enforce all of the laws and amend and modify them in different ways based on how they can interpret them. And it's really important that we have judges who are competent and also understand the nuances of those legislation when they're being put forward so that we don't end up in circumstances where judges are creating essentially havoc there was a recent incident that I've been dealing with lately as a foreclosure defense attorney. At the beginning of last year, the Court of Appeals ruled on a case where bank was able to do something called de-accelerating a mortgage. What that essentially is, is a pretextual concept where they're running out of time on the statute of limitations. They don't have a great case. They're looking at it like maybe mm. it's not going to go their way. So they de-accelerate. And they basically take the money that was called due originally and remove it and say, you're good. We don't have to worry about this anymore. And then subsequently send a letter to the borrowers and say, but we're accelerating it again now. And the statute of limitations gets to start fresh as though there was no statute of limitations at all. So they just pull it out and then put yeah, it back pull in. it out, put it back in totally unilaterally. That got all the way to the Court of Appeals and the Court of Appeals ruled in favor of the bank and essentially destroyed the concept of a statute of limitations. It's not just in mortgages, but any sort of lending institution, they don't have to deal with statute of limitations anymore because they can just deaccelerate, reaccelerate at a whim, no matter what. So I ended up having to, with some other folks, push a foreclosure defense bill, I guess you'd call it, mm. just to fix the statute of limitations problem. 
Can you clarify a statute of limitations? It's kind of an obvious concept, but I never thought about how important it is. It's like if you're going through your life and somebody sues you or has a mortgage issue in this case, there comes a point where the statute of limitations is up and you can move on with your life. But without that, just whoever has the most money will make the case go long enough until they win. And there's no way to plan your life around that. Unless you have as much money as a bank. Yeah, that's the point of the statute of limitations, is to give people a clear end point for when something can be litigated. So if you sue inside of that time period, you're fine. Even if the case lasts forever, it's fine, because you manage to start the case before the statute of limitations period ends. Different kinds of cases have different statute of limitations. And if you don't have that sense of assured end point for when like a bank or lending institution can sue you, then you could just be living your life, you know, there was an old credit card bill that was forgotten about and disappeared. And 20 years later, you suddenly get hit with a lawsuit that includes the crazy amount of interest for that whole period. And it's like, well, that doesn't make any sense. Where were you for 20 years? Why did you let all of this accrue? You should have sued during the statute of limitations period so that there was some finality. And so we want to have statutes of limitations that work in that sense. We also don't want to be able to have certain kinds of plaintiffs with money and means to be able to take multiple bites at the apple. So if they fail on a case and then they realize, "Uh uh-oh, this isn't going my way, the statute of limitations period is running up, they have to just deal with their case because they don't have the ability to just come back again after. But instead, what a bank is trying to do now is pretextually cancel the debt and then reinstate it and then start the case again so that they don't have to worry about the fact that it's been a decade. So it was a judge's... The lower courts didn't allow the banks to do it. And so the bank kept appealing it to different courts until it reached the Until they hit the right judge, basically. They hit the right judge, and then the Court of Appeals, those judges who are appointed... The wrong judge, No, I mean, they had to have been elected at some point in the past, but they eventually, you know, they get appointed to the appellate positions. They were like, nah, that's fine. There's a dissent in the case, too, and the dissent sort of just itemizes the whole problem with this concept, <laughs> but it's a dissent. It doesn't mean anything, so we had to fix it legislatively. So Senator Sanders had a good bill, and there was another Weinstein bill. They ended up getting mashed together. Wow. It just passed the Judiciary Committee, and it looks good. And that's a lot of effort fixing a thing that could have been solved with properly vetting judges. And one of the things that's always frustrating to me is I rarely have any concept of who the judges are when I go to vote. Mm -hmm. It's still confusing when you see a judge under four different lines, like they're under Republican, Democrat, conservative, liberal party, whatever. And there's usually exactly the correct number of people as the number you're supposed to vote for. The county committee, they like pre-vet all of these people, they don't get on that ballot unless the county committee says, yeah. We all see it, but we never really question it. And it's something that we'd like to have changed. I know New Kings Democrats have been trying to do a bunch of different reforms for years now, but this one requires a lot of district leaders to be involved. So it's how we ended up on a slate to run as many as we can to take over essentially like the executive committee and make those rule changes possible without having to worry about blowback from people who just don't seem to want any sort of change or reform at all that are in the party. We typically do focus just on Bay Ridge and New Kings Dems are a little bit outside of Bay Ridge. What is New Kings Dems? I suppose they're a club. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) 
I am a member, they're reform-minded Democrats that seem to be focused predominantly on the party itself mm -hmm. to try to change how the party works from within. They're very focused on county committee and trying to get people involved in county committee, which is the smallest form of democratic governance. They're trying to get more people so that there are fewer proxies mm -hmm. because the proxies get abused by county leadership sometimes. And that's not a great thing. You want to have more people who actually represent electoral districts involved in everything. My understanding of the proxy issue is that county committee is made up of hundreds of committee members. Thousands. Isn't that the rep your block rep thing your that block. New Kings yeah. Dems has tried to... Exactly. Literally repping your block, yeah. yeah. The electoral districts yeah. are tiny. So county committee is a huge body, but not all of those people actually can go to the meetings at times, so they fill out a card and sign over their vote as a proxy vote. That's fine, right? Like, having proxies is sensible. People that have disabilities, people that are older, they can't show up to meetings. That stuff is great. We want to have people have the ability to have proxies, and district leaders can carry proxies for the people in the assembly district. That's one of their responsibilities. It is a responsibility. The problem comes when the leadership just sort of invents proxies. Taking a look at the voter rolls, finding names that live in those districts, and then just making them proxies without telling them. I've heard that where one district leader or two district leaders or like the head of the county committee or whatever ends up wielding thousands of proxy votes and these main meetings, it's supposed to happen like a couple of times a year, right? Supposed to, I've narrowed it to just one. One, yeah. lately, because one or two people with thousands of proxy votes outvoted everybody else to say, now nah, we're having this once a year. Yeah, how many of our listeners know about the epic, what was it, like 12, 16, 20 hour 20, meeting? 21 hour, I think, uh, yeah. meeting in 2020. They spent a day doing a whole bunch of reforms, getting things done, and then the very next day walked them all back. <laughs> Holy shit. Most people don't think that this lowest level can mm -hmm. be this corrupt. And this is our backyard. As Democrats, if you are a Democrat, there are a lot of independents listening. Republicans have their own problems with corruption in their county mm -hmm. committees, absolutely. This is our attempt at reforming this lowest level of governance. That's a big place for grift to happen. Yeah, there's board of elections appointments. I mean, these judges are basically appointed through this process. I know people don't like to say it, but it feels like patronage. It feels like a patronage system that is protecting itself. It doesn't yeah. want to be transparent because if you make a patronage system transparent, then you suddenly realize how corrupt it actually is the yeah. whole way through. And that's not a great place for people <laughs> involved to be. Shedding light on that would be ruinous for people if it is actually as corrupt as it seems like it is from all of the behaviors of everybody that's protecting it got people who have well-paid positions that they're walking away from or taking a leave from so that they can run district leader campaigns for a position that is ostensibly a volunteer position. You do not get paid. Right. You know, there's no payment involved in being a district leader. This is entirely for the good of the party, for good governance. Because at the end of the day, this isn't a job. It's volunteer work. We help staff polling sites. We help make sure people understand what's going on in the local government. It's a bully pulpit. It's things like that. It's just organizing. It's, it's essentially just activism, but you're elected into the position so that you've got some modicum of legitimacy when you're doing it. But it's more important than that to people who are in the party currently, because there's clearly some element of patronage that has existed for 
decades that just doesn't want to go away. You talked about the bully pulpit. There are a lot of district leaders who've been in that machinery for a long time. There are some newer district leaders who are absolutely making use of that bully pulpit and getting messages out. And I just wondered, especially because you're part of that New Kings Dem slate, what do you see kind of happening with other district leaders or other folks running for the position in terms of this organizing? Julio Pena is somebody that I really appreciate the work that he's been doing. He did a judge, I don't know what you call it, like it wasn't a judicial screening, but it was sort of an event where he got people out to give them information about who the judges were going to be on the ballot. I thought that was a fantastic thing because if you're not going to make it public entirely and he can't unilaterally, then at the very least, letting people know what's going on and giving people an opportunity to see is one particularly nice thing. One of the things that has been really interesting is the growth of this kind of leftist reformer coalition. Hmm. And without getting into too much detail on the individuals, because we're not doing a campaign ad for anybody, can you talk a little bit about building that coalition and what that looks like? Because you're bringing in people from other parts of the district and forming ways to organize with them. I am actually on the Brittany Ramos de Barros campaign. I probably let let you know that. I <laughs> yeah. believe in that movement for progressive New York 11. It's been great being a part of that in addition to running for a district leader at the same time, not just because it's a good way to get people interested in something beyond just the party politics, because you get to talk to people on doors about whatever you want, really. I mean, we're door knocking. <laughs> you know, you want to talk about television shows or who's running for Congress, and that's fantastic. <laughs> but also the state Senate district, Gennard's district, is going all the way to Park Slope. So the progressives in Bay Ridge now have a bit more like cachet, I guess <laughs> would be the way to say it. Yeah. It's like the lines have changed. And so our perspectives don't need to be tied to this old line of logic of, well, what about the Republicans? They're not going to let you be full-throatedly progressive because, you know, if you say something like bail reform, they're going to freak out and you can't do that. And we can teach them Bail reform is mm-hmm. a complicated thing that most people have a fear response to yeah. without ever actually thinking or even knowing what bail is for the I most part. I see so many so people like, who wow. have like so many things to say about bail reform, like the Mets tickets a thing. Oh my God. And they don't even understand. We have a justice system where you serve time and then you're out and then you have rights. The thing that drives me crazy is these people who say, oh, you shouldn't have bail, you shouldn't have bail. You're saying you should lock people up indefinitely. Without, without trial. any kind of trial or being convicted of anything. And that just... A police person arresting you isn't a freaking trial. You end up going from somebody being anti-bail reform and not knowing what bail is or what the reform is or what any of the policies are. If you talk for long enough, many people become prison abolitionists at the end. <laughs> yeah. You know, because you get to the point, like Rachel saying, what do you think, that people should just be locked up indefinitely? <laughs> and then they're like, no, like people shouldn't be locked up. It's not rehabilitating people or keeping people from committing crimes. And so we should be doing different things. And then you could talk to them about Red Hook's experimental court system, where they do things that are not directing people towards jail time and helping people out with rehabilitative programs, like an art program for having done some <laughs> graffiti or something. Yeah, I mean... There's a million things that courts can do. Again, going back to the fact that we have good judges, they can do mm. good things. Yep. When you talk to people about this type of stuff, it becomes very clear that they have lost the narrative somewhere or they weren't given it to begin with because they're just working from a place of fear and not from any sort of logical perspective about what prison can do to help out with communities, which is essentially nothing. It's just a way to make people feel more comfortable. Anyway, this is a really long tangent. Do we want to take a quick break and get another drink? Part five, everyone. 
All right, we have fast-forwarded. We've all gotten another drink or two drinks. We got some cheeses. Boilermaker, is that? Is it, we yeah. figured that one out, right? And uh, we're back with more from Mark Hanna. And it's not like it's a radio show where you're coming in in the middle and you don't know who this guy is. But, but actually, more... you know what? I didn't actually introduce who the hell I am. So who I don't know are if you? You know what? So I, now yeah. that we're at this point, right? who are you, Mark Hanna? I've been listening for <laughs> had, yeah, had a couple of drinks. Let's, let's get into it. Who, who even am I? I'm a local attorney. I was born in South Brooklyn. Family moved to Jersey, so I lived on a farm briefly, then Ooh. moved back to Brooklyn as soon as the fuck I could. Apologies <laughs> for the language. So went to law school at Brooklyn Law, been in Bay Ridge for about a decade now. Got involved in politics after, well, to be fair, I got involved in politics after I listened to my first Rage Against the Machine album. <laughs> nice. There we go. <laughs> but mostly just spent that time angrily being upset with people on Facebook and reading everything in the Rage Against the Machine reading list, which a lot of people don't know exists, but has some really good stuff in what? it. Wow. Yeah, check that out. Rage Against the Machine has a reading list for leftists, and everybody should look at it if they have any sense of being a leftist. Links in our show notes. <laughs> <laughs> but then after Trump got elected, they instituted the Muslim ban. And I saw another friend of mine who was at JFK, and I was like, oh, I'm admitted in the Eastern District. I can help out with whatever people need. Like, if they get to file something, we can do it through my pacer, whatever. I realized, oh, I could be useful to people who are basically subject to strange political whims by Trump. So I went to JFK, spent days there interviewing people for habeas petitions, writing up letters to different nonprofits to try to get some assistance and was dumbfounded by how ridiculous that was. That people who should never have been stopped were just being detained frivolously by wild, nonsensical political act. Remember in particular one guy who was from Arkansas? This had an accent. Clearly not from one of the countries on the Muslim ban list or anything. Yeah. And like that was supposed to be temporary. The right, tempor that right, lasted the whole nonsense. freaking presidency. And like the guy had like a U.S. passport. It was clearly from here for his entire life, but looked Muslim. And they ended up stealing his laptop because he had a Quran book on table he was using for prayers. And so they questioned him about it for three hours. Never gave it back to it. It was wild. I couldn't believe that this was something that could happen here without anybody realizing what was going on and what the ramifications would be for something like that. In a way, it's kind of similar to what you're saying about statutes of limitations earlier, because people who are coming to the United States are oftentimes preparing for years, getting documents together and saving up money, selling everything they own. They don't have anything to go back to because they sold their house, their business, and all their assets to start a new life in America. And then while they're in a plane, somebody with a stroke of a pen... Yeah. Somebody just is like, no, that's not good enough anymore. And the guy lived here and it didn't matter. You know, being a citizen wasn't even enough in that circumstance for wow. that particular yeah. guy. It was pretty clear that nobody had any sense of what was supposed to happen. And so they were just grabbing random brown people off of planes and mm. holding them hostage. For, you know, sometimes days at a time. Coming back to Bay Ridge, found the Father K campaign. Uh, mm. And that was sort of like beautiful moment for me because I was like, oh, I can continue to help. And I've got Arab heritage that I like to foster as much as I can. And being a part of a city council race where it was a Palestinian man running for city council in a district that was filled with Arab Americans that we could register to vote and engage was amazing. And I yeah. had so much fun and I learned so much and it was a tremendous endeavor. And so another reason why I just I want to be in this district too. 
immediately after the Father K race, was looking to see what else was around, found that Andrew Gennardis was running for state senate, mm. met him at, I think, the first campaign event that he was holding at a law firm that a friend of mine worked at, uh, hung out with Andrew afterwards, really impressed by everything that he was talking about. And it's like, I've gotten some of my Levant heritage in the previous campaign. Now I'm going to work with a Greek. I'm really like leaning into this, like, you know, heritage stuff in Bay Ridge. But um, it felt great to be a part of that too. He's become a really effective legislator. Helped me out with that foreclosure bill too. Quite a bit. Got me in touch with other elected officials to try to make that work. Somebody like him who's somewhat technocratic and seems to really like to dig deep into the nitty gritty of, oh, yeah. of those legislations, like was kind of in his wheelhouse, which was nice. I worked with Tahani Abushi after that for Manhattan District Attorney, but that was the first time that I was actually involved in the campaign as a treasurer. Realized that I was pretty decent at keeping track of other people's books. Uh, <laughs> and that's how I ended up doing more with the Brittany Ramos Devaros campaign and continuing to today. What was the moment that you decided district leader is the next step? One of the things that the Brittany campaign is trying to do is to just help out with voter engagement and district leaders are good at doing that because we end up having to get out a lot of that during petitioning and then for GOTV and things of that nature. So it was just one more element of that. But at first I was like, that sounds ridiculous. I don't know what a district leader is. And ended up seeing that New Kings Democrats was doing a slate of reform district leaders. And that spoke to me because of the judicial screening stuff in particular. Again, like, you know, I'm dealing with these judges every day as part of my job. So Mm. I want to know more about them before going into the voting booth and selecting all of them down the list without having any consideration, because that doesn't feel right for me either. So I was like, okay, I'm going to get involved in this. I was in the 64th at the time when I started running. They redistricted me out of it, but I wanted to be there anyway, so I'm sticking to it. And got an endorsement from NKD, and that was the point where I was like, okay, now I'm actually doing this. You know, these other district leader candidates are fantastic, too, in their own right. I've been meeting them one at a time, doing different things. I know one of them came out canvassing with me the other day, uh, this woman, Naomi, who's running in uh, the 59th. Really wonderful woman. She's got a lot of things going for her. And, but you know, she's running against an assemblywoman who's also a district leader, which is Whoa. mind-blowing to me. There's actually instances where someone can't have their day job and be a district leader. And weirdly, that's not if they're an elected official. No, yeah. Only if they're in a certain appointed position. Like Mark Traeger yeah. can't be a district leader because of conflicts of interest. But Jamie Williams, who's in the 59th, can. And as a result, she's running an assembly campaign and a district leader campaign. And that's wild to me. Like, why, why are they doing it? I have a really nitty gritty question. But if somebody's running a district leader campaign and an assembly campaign, how do they break up campaign finance of that? Because like, what <laughs> laws are district leaders subject to? It's the same. You create a campaign committee for a district leader race and you can't mingle the money, but how the hell do you even, I mean, like, realistically. Like, what are you going to do 50-50 on palm card with two different faces of you? It is frustrating. It's like It very quickly gets into the same level of intrigue as what you might expect of an elected office. And it just backs up this idea that these are positions with power. There's this level of patronage to all of it. Unspoken, but clearly there. Otherwise, there's no reason to protect such a thing. Mm-hmm. Making things more transparent for a party is reasonable. I mean, it's democracy. It's like something I joke on. It's like democracy in my democratic party. Oh, how, how dare you? What? Like, it's like, what? Are you kidding me? Like, we don't do that here. I don't know. It's, it's a thing that I don't like to dwell on too much because 
at the end of the day, I'm not really running against in the person. I'm sort of yeah. running against the party itself that doesn't want me or any of the other reformers involved. Yeah. Don't question it. Don't look too deep into this. Like, this is fine. This is all good. We're doing democracy here. You're also state committee people, correct? And so there's this hyper-local county party situation. But then there's also the state party and the decisions that are made there. And when they endorse somebody and we're all sitting there going, who are these people who yeah, are endorsing? That's elections. who they are. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah, special elections happen way more often than they should, yeah, it was, honestly. It's like, like a third or some crazy number of elected officials put in special elections. Like, yeah. It's yeah, like a wild like one number. One third of like sitting legislatures won their first election in a special election. Yeah. So they might have won a regular election since then. Um, but that's still I, I think a that, wild that number. number might be a little bit out of date, but I think it's still pretty close. Yeah. Yeah, because incumbency is so powerful that if you can swing through in a low turnout mm -hmm. special election, then you mm -hmm. have incumbency in a general election and you have a lot more power there. And the party protects incumbents in a way that I don't really like. It pressures people to not run against incumbents. It prevents primaries in certain ways. And that doesn't feel right to me, particularly now that you know, we're dealing with redistricting and things like that, where people who are incumbents have new constituencies, and they may not represent their new constituencies. And that's an important factor to consider when there are elections with a lot of primaries. Granted, you know, I like a lot of my elected officials and all of the rest of that, and I would want to help out. But one of the things that I have to contend with is my own moral philosophy about yeah. being a district leader and not just being there for protecting incumbents, but now having to like put aside my own personal feelings for things. And like, for the party, it makes a lot of sense to protect incumbents because they've already won a primary. Right. So and why less spend resources. money on a primary? Yeah. But like, but they is that shouldn't, worth right. having a mediocre representative? Exactly. Yeah. Or a representative that doesn't represent a constituency. If a constituency does want that representative, great. They're going to elect them. But that shouldn't mean that we should be pressuring people away from having primaries or doing behind the scenes work to screw them over in some way or another. Because that stuff is terrible. In New York, in Buffalo, I mean, India Walton mm -hmm. won a primary and then the party pushed a write-in campaign to defeat her again. You can't have that cake and eat it too. You've got to either be in the constituency wants this person, they want a primary and that's that. Mm -hmm. Or we're just going to go full on corrupt and just put on whoever the hell we want. Pick a lane. <laughs> like, yeah. Like, what do you think is the biggest opportunity for a district leader coming in that has not been taken advantage of that they can contribute to the party? I'm just repeating myself on this one, but it is that judicial screening process. Mm -hmm. It's a very easy task. Julio Pena has already done something that made it easier for people to understand what the candidates stand for. Granted, judicial candidates are apolitical in quotations. Yeah, that's why they can show up on multiple party lines. The personal is the political. There's really no way to avoid that there is some politics in everything. But at the very least, it's another step to just make the whole process public, the screening process, things like that. Maybe the second easiest ask would be to have the county do more than one meeting a year, um, <laughs> you know, like, or just implement Robert's Rules of Order. They don't use Robert Rules. They do, but they ignore it when it's convenient. And then when there's something they don't want enforced, then it's like, oh, I'm sorry, Robert's Rules prevent us from doing this. Yeah, when you have thousands of proxy votes, Robert's Rules don't matter. No, yeah. Like... Well, that's, that's the story I remember is like the defining story I heard about proxy votes was Frank Setio, the former chair, would slap down his six-inch pile of proxy yeah, votes and that's like, it. 
famously had 600 proxy votes suddenly, out of nowhere. Actually, we don't want to do this. Here's 600 proxy votes. I win. When we were doing the community board episode, one of the things I was wanted to put in, and I still have to do an episode about this, is just how even in the 80s, they realized we don't understand how to get people who are below a certain income bracket or people who are disenfranchised in general to volunteer for the lowest form of civic engagement, which is community board, or the lowest form of party engagement, which is the county committee. I mean, they're all volunteer. Yeah. Some of the things that they're saying in the 80s was like, maybe we should make these paid. Maybe we should let it so that people don't have to worry about taking care of their kid while they sit through a 21-hour meeting. Childcare stipends, transportation stipends. And then they were like, yeah, but if we start making it paid, then it becomes another patronage problem. And they were struggling with this in the 80s, like 30 years ago. Quick shout out to the female-led city council cohort yeah. this year. What, yeah. 30, 30 out of 50? That's what came out of a ranked choice voting mm. process. And I would like to briefly mention that we experimented with ranked choice in the 60s, and it was immediately shut down because it, so, it resulted in actual representation <laughs> for minorities. Didn't it also result in actual representation for socialists? Yes, it did. It absolutely was. Um, like the history of New York politics is yeah. just like restructuring things to disadvantage socialists. I <laughs> want to do an episode on Mr. Caccione, who That's was so the boy. Italian representative, the only one south of Prospect Park that was representing Brooklyn at the time. He was essentially our city councilman when they didn't have city council boundaries, Mm -hmm. when they're making the transition from alderman to city council. They made it a borough-wide open election that was ranked choice in the 40s and 50s. And there was this radical Italian socialist from southern Brooklyn, lived in Bath Beach. He (laughs) failed the first ranked choice because the party committee, the county committee, put up 20 freaking people for the ranked choice because they're like oh if we're gonna do ranked choice we're just gonna flood the election with all of the people on our party kind of like with the judicial nominations on your current ballot you can't not choose one of them Mm. they tried to do that for ranked choice in the 50s and then a random socialist decides to jump in too (laughs) damn random socialist and like he almost got in as the bottom most ranked choice candidate but then he kept running and he kept running and eventually he became the number one ranked choice vote in brooklyn this was during world war ii he was the one guy who was saying mussolini's a piece of shit we have to fight fascism at a time when that was a problem within the italian american community who was being very outspoken about that in Mm. city government he worked with the first african-american city council members at the time who were representing places like bed-stuy and he was letting them get up and speak surrendering his time in city council and he died in office immediately before that the entire party committee structure was like we're getting rid of crank choice voting. <laughs> this is not working out. Because he was the first socialist, no. and then two more got in. <gasps> and they were like, oh, shit. No. And for more on socialists in New York City politics from 1900 on, say it with me, folks. Links in the show notes. <laughs> Links in the show notes. This is what happens when you get me a little drunk. Can I ask, what is the level of financial resources that battling shit like that takes. In order to keep people off of a ballot, generally speaking, what happens is you litigate the petitions. The people who sign the petitions, the witnesses, you know, you can invalidate certain signatures. 
because people signed the same line twice, once for a different candidate, once for you, you know, or maybe they don't live in the district or they're listed as deceased somewhere. I mean, to be fair, I was listed as deceased in the voter rolls this year, and then I had to have that fixed. But um, the, uh, <laughs> there's a million ways to try to litigate you off, but it is litigation. It's actually fighting people in court. And so as a result, you end up needing to spend money on lawyers. Even though I am an attorney, I would represent myself for any of that kind of thing, because yeah. an attorney that represents himself represents a fool for a client. Um, <laughs> and so the... Uh, <laughs> I'm clearly drinking a little bit too much today. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm about to call another beer break. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, the serious problem is that it costs a lot of money to litigate and to defend yourself from that litigation. So yeah. I have a really fantastic attorney help me out. It's Ali Najmi. You know, we worked ah. together on a bunch of different campaigns and the dude is fantastic. Just for context, he was the attorney on the voter access absentee ballot lawsuits in 2020, right? Yep. Was, yep. yep. Love that dude. But... I still have to pay him to help me out with litigation because <laughs> it's not entirely pro bono work. So when you're talking about a district leader race, what is the financial commitment that you're looking at to be able to pay for that kind of defense? It's like 10 grand. Wow. Like, for a non-paid right. position. For a volunteer position. It wouldn't be if it wasn't that the county was fighting tooth and nail to prevent reform district leaders from being involved in stuff. But it's been threatened repeatedly, not just to me, but other NKD candidates, things like that, that they're going to litigate us, no matter what. And I fully expect it to. So you have to fundraise twice as much as most district leaders probably need to. Twice? I mean, most district leaders don't fundraise at all. Mm -hmm. Like, it's just not worth fundraising. Because what is the point of that? Like, you're not yeah. really running a campaign the same way that other people are. You're just going out, door knocking, collecting 500 signatures. You're good to go. In this case, I'm not just collecting signatures. I have to actually campaign as though it were like an assembly race. Social media, palm cards and posters and going crazy just because I have to get my name out enough that I can get people to sign my petitions and also to then win an election afterwards because I'm going to be fought tooth and nail the whole way through. So I've got to get my name out enough to get donations from people in a way that I would normally only have to do if I was running for something that was legislative. It's particularly difficult to fundraise from that perspective too because I'm asking people for money for a position that most people don't get any benefit from. If it was a legislative position, then everyone has a benefit because I'm legislating something. But it's invisible, the benefit district leaders provide for people. And even still, not something that I can necessarily provide unless a bunch of other people get elected too. So it's not just me. It's a whole slate of people because the stuff that we want to reform that will help people needs all of us involved in it. Because if only half or like a handful of us win, then county's just going to have a whiplash effect and crush us all immediately after using proxies to ensure that change can't be made. It's almost an all or nothing kind of. Right. I've got to help out other people. We're trying to do as much as we can through that Brooklyn Can't Wait slate because it's not necessarily all or nothing, but it is most of us or nothing. Anything less than half and we're all going to be useless. It's a midterm election, so there's guaranteed to be less people involved, mm -hmm. right? That's just statistically the case. But it is a super important midterm election. We're still in the midst of a reactionary movement that can come back at any moment and screw up even the most bare minimum basic progress that we've made.
a lot of this has to do with getting out people and engaging people. I don't know if it's going to work out that way. I really hope that it does, though. I'm hoping that I'm getting people excited in my district. I'm hoping that the other people who are running for district leaders in their district are getting people excited to vote, not just for them, but for everybody else that's running above them. I'm not even elected to be a district leader. Like, I want people to still vote, though, in the primary, and then again later in November. To wrap up, let's talk about the role that you listeners at home have, because number one, district leader won't show up unless you're registered as a Democrat, right? Right. Yep. So if you're registered as a Democrat, make sure- Primary only. That when you go in for the primary, it's only in the primary, it's not in the general, so go to your primary election. We're going to have a thing on the- webpage about everyone who is currently running for the new district seats because everything has been changed around. So also double check, see where you are in this new district because we have totally changed the maps. See where well, you not, are. Not us personally. Yeah, we. Have I mean, I tried. I, I did testifying <laughs> in front of the committee. The, the we as the people of we New York. <laughs> there was yes. that was a moment where I was hoping that Bay Ridge would have its own assembly district, and oh. you know, I testified repeatedly to try to get that to happen, and it <sighs> was for not. I mean, it makes so much sense it to does. me. They, just they, just yeah. draw a little circle. Like, like we've got those highways. I would call it natural, but it is clearly a man-made division. <laughs> Robert, Robert, Robert Moses, thank you. But um, <laughs> stay tuned as well for probably our next episode, which will be about the district maps with Danny Loud, who mm. is our new environmental correspondent. Oh, I want to come back for redistricting stuff. I learned so much about district lines. How many people can come be back any on to Come back. Oh, come back on for come it. Come back. I want to shout out Mark for saying the personal is political and perhaps being the first person on this podcast because I'm real jealous that it wasn't me. <laughs> oh, <I'm laughs> it's one of my favorite slogans. It, it is one of my favorite lines. I had some pushback from a friend the other day who was annoyed about that phrase for whatever reason because they were like, yeah, no, but the real personal is private and not political. And I'm like, nah, no, I, still, I disagree, all. man. I still disagree. <laughs> Even the shit that happens in your home. Yeah. Lawrence versus Texas. That shit happened literally in their house. You can't even be gay in Texas. That is the definitive part of that the was personal. a family that was court political. issue, right? <laughs> <laughs> Local family court. But this is it. The courts fuck with people daily, and you don't even know how it's going to affect you, and that is a problem. Although to be fair, the family courts are appointed. So, Mark, thank you so much. <laughs> for coming on the show to talk about all of this stuff. Thank you so much for drinking with us to enjoy a St. Patrick's Day. Our first airing drunk episode. This is a lot of fun for me. (laughs) Where can people find you? You got a website? Yeah, it's hannah2022.com. Hannah with no second H. That's right, yeah. Nope, it's H-A-N-N-A-2022.com. I don't remember what my Twitter is. Hannah DL64. And I think it's also my Instagram. I'm correct. It is also and your my Facebook. Instagram. You got a TikTok? Don't have a TikTok. He has no TikTok. I, yeah. Yeah, video content for me is strange. I don't like the way that I move. I feel very weird and like lanky and, no, and you just, just go like dis- this and you're disor- like, hey, I'm out. I'm doing my district leader thing. Thank you for tuning in. Peace. <laughs> done. I probably could have done it the other day when I was out canvassing with my mom. 
everyone. If you want to check out the show notes for this, I'm sure I'm going to be fact-checking a little bit because we got tipsy before the end, obviously. <laughs> we lied. Um, <laughs> in case anything was inaccurate, please check the transcript where we'll have links to a lot of things that we're talking about. Check us out on Radio Free Bay Ridge Org. That's the website. Or on social media if you like when we get snarky. And that's on Twitter at, at Radio Free BR. Um, on Facebook. But if you just wanted photographs of our fair neighborhood, you would check us out on Instagram. Obviously, subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already. Um, it really helps out. Leave us a review or whatever. We have a Patreon as well if you feel like throwing a couple bucks our way. But until next time, everybody. Stay, stay free, 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 free